Hey up and welcome to the Temple of Blair. This is a conversation with Frank Helmick. Now this was recorded like back in November, so this has just taken me fucking ages to get round to editing. Frank works at Boomer Culture. Now Boomer Culture isn't what it sounds like. It's B-U-M-A-C-U-T-W-R. And it's effectively the Performing Rights Society equivalent of the Netherlands. Um, so if you're familiar with that, you know, that, that, that's helpful. But Frank's history is in music television, which is where the Roadrunner interest comes in as a metalhead. So check this out for a unique perspective on Roadrunner from the eyes of a music television professional. One, two, fuck shit up. Television broadcasting as, as, a, as an entity anyway is something I'm not overly familiar with. Um, I usually prep like 10, 15 questions, but I thought because I don't know this world, I thought I'll, let's just be meander through it and let's not, because I know you've got a relationship with the label and you have a reverence for it. And it's in a sense that when I said I was doing the documentary, you said, ah, I was, you were thinking of something similar. Yeah. Um, so obviously you'll, you will be on the same wavelength. So let's just wander through, I think, in, in, a, yep. in a low stakes capacity. So no problem. when did you, when, when did you realize that Roadrunner was a thing? What, how did it first come across your desk? Uh, I think it, it even started before I started working. So when I was just sitting around in my hometown, uh, smoking spliffs and, and listening to metal, you kind of like, you kind of found out that the Roadrunner thing on the side of the CD yeah. was happening. So you, you, this image thing started with everybody uh, somewhere in the beginning of the 90s end of the 80s i think even yeah uh and for tmf it was the quickest the quickest win for me because i started to do a metal show over there that's the only thing i started with and then i ended up to be uh, be the program director of the whole tv station mm. um but for the metal show it was pretty easy to look up the guys you have to be in, con in contact with so it started with roadrunner yeah. and a long time nothing and then you got the somber rough trade and nuclear blast and all the stuff which was a little bit more difficult because some of them didn't even have guys in holland to mm. uh, to work for them but roadrunner was um it was an easy catch because those guys were also looking for a place to put their metal on there was nothing at all in Holland. They, the only thing they had was MTV, but MTV was just broadcasted from the UK, so they didn't have any influence on whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, and the fun thing is that the program I started on had already started two months before that, but they they were just showing Bon Jovi, Guns N' Roses, and all the stuff. It was yeah. called Wet and Wild as well, which is kind of like a horrible story. <laughs> horrible name for a metal show but okay and the guy hosting it he doesn't even know any metal band at sure. all sure sure it was fun it was fun and then roadrunner was a was really it was a big help because they invested also in camera crews going to festivals etc i was going to ask about this so the big example i always refer to is dynamo 95 and you, you mentioned that um Roadrunner paid for the production arm of that. Was that typical of labels of the time? Or was I that... I don't know if it did 95. 95 was even better because uh, Dre, Andre from, uh, from, from Dynamo, he uh, he just came over to, to TMF. He, we had a conversation. He said, well, I have all these tapes. 
can you can you do something with oh, it? Okay. I right. broadcasted it completely. But then from '96, we uh, decided to really go to all those festivals and do some interviews and all the stuff. Mm-hmm. And then Roadrunner uh, suggested, well, because I didn't have any money to spend on this TV show, because I mean it was 10, 15, 20,000 people watching. That's it. So it was yeah. about every everybody that was metal in Holland was watching the show. <laughs> Uh, so we didn't really have money. We had a discussion uh, in uh, at TMF about using uh, cameras. I mean, there was a um, half of the people wanted us to use like the really big professional cameras, and I wanted to use all those new stuff that were that was around back then, all those DV cams and all this stuff. Yeah. Um, and in the end, it, we ended up using them for almost every alternative show. Mm-hmm. But in the beginning, we weren't allowed to, so we we had to do some invest investments. I mean, it, it was like, it was about three, four, five thousand a festival, so it wasn't really a lot of money. But we mm. didn't have the money, so Roadrunner paid a shitload of it and made it a lot easier for us to do all these interviews and all this stuff. And there was the time that at Dynamo Open Air, I think twenty five percent of the bands performing. We're on the Roadrunner roster. Yeah, yeah. So was it typical for a label to try and have so much input into the promotion arm? Because yeah. also they benefit from that, didn't they? Because They do, and um, um, it's... I mean, all the, the major labels did exactly the same right? Okay. in that way that they didn't really pay for the camera crew most of the times, but they send us... To whatever kind of a city in the states do an interview with mariah carey or whoever right that was also paid completely to so all the all the flight tickets the the dinners the hotels the the camera crew was already over there i think it's like there's a territorial specificity to that activity as well because when k signs off on tmf having some sort of production budget to film interviews with Rudder and Axe or whatever, any TV show or any capacity. I wonder if at this point he understood that there's 20,000 metalheads in Holland and there's no more. Yeah. Because that's the challenge, right? You can only pour so much money and expect sure. to return on that kind of inv- promotional investment. Yeah, but then on the other hand, they sold about 25, 30,000 copies of the machine at home. Mm. for example so the, there is a the potential amount of people buying cds was kind of big back then um and what they also did was uh using all the stuff of course all this all the success the those bands had in holland was also usable for pr uh purposes in all the other countries oh, i suppose yeah so if you if you can once you nail a territory, you can then say, go to Germany and say, this band is huge in Holland. Maybe yeah, there was a time. There was a time Holland was seen as a uh, breakthrough country, which isn't, which, which it isn't anymore for a long time already. But can you unpack that a little bit? I'm just curious because I'm, I always think of Case's background because he obviously worked for Polygram, and there was a there was an era, especially in the disco era, yeah. where everything seemed to happen in Hilversum. Yep. I, was was everyone located there? Was this what a tax benefit? I don't what, know. What was I it? really, really don't know because right now Universal Music uh, is it's, it's, um, it's going to the stock market as well, mm. and they also started in Holland. They yeah. picked out Holland for, and I don't know if this is a tax thing. 
I hope it is because I wouldn't know why you should live in Hilversum for doing uh, doing your job. <laughs> but I don't know. I, some uh, it's if I take metal for instance, sometimes there are Dutch bands, uh, which is also true for all these electronic dance music that are first. With Temptation was one of the first to to really have a breakthrough in female fronted metal. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, sometimes it's the producer, sometimes it's just the studio, the whistle Lord in Hilversum, which is used by the police and all the bands. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, I don't even know, I don't think the police were on uh, on Polydor whatsoever. I think they were at EMI. And, um, I don't really, I don't really, it's, it's kind of funny because right now it's all about electronic dance music that is really big in mm-hmm. uh, outside of Holland and if you look at the export uh, the amount of money that is being earned with exporting music I think 75 to 80 percent is electronic music right Um, and that's the same if it's successful worldwide you will see all those countries trying to connect to all these successful producers and do uh, well do collapse on what whatever kind of a song Different I'm, market though, isn't it? Yeah. 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 And I don't I don't know what happened in the eighties or nineties. I mean, I was I was I was too young to even notice whatever <laughs> was happening. Um but I I think what Case did was was a good thing in I mean he took the major uh company kind of work working to a niche uh record label. Yeah back then. And it worked. Because he had the, he was he was lucky that I got to work on TMF as a metal fan. Because yeah. if I wouldn't have been there, nobody would have said, "Well, let's do the Machine Head interview." Yeah, sure. I wouldn't sure. have known it. So it's 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 a matter of luck, and then uh, knowing who to who to call. Because there was there was always one guy or girl working on the on the public radio station, the big one for the pop music. Yeah, uh, working on metal. So there were like one or two or three places you could you could just uh, release all these metal music. And then if you if you were lucky enough to to meet people that really intended to try to make as many people uh, love this kind of music, so like being a uh, almost being a Christian trying to convince you of believing in God. It it, it was a lucky. It was I don't know. It it might have been a luckier thing than we think yeah i mean as far as timing is concerned yeah i mean i think the activity in itself of like cases going that it's so strange to think of it in this way because we as metalheads assume metal has been around for a billion years so it's inconceivable to us to think actually there's not a lot of like promotional circulation going around or not as much as there could be and case is probably thinking look this is outlier music it's a relatively emerging scene especially in the 80s there's not the same kind of press as you would for as as you'd have say pop artists and things like that and Mm -hmm. he's gone is there a way to fill this gap can we just invest and see what happens because it'd be great to see metal hammer on the same shelf as smash hits or whatever the equivalent would have been it back then and that's the gap isn't that's what that's where the innovation is yeah True. And what, yeah, and bringing bands to the scene were, in a way, acceptable for the real metalhead and for people that were curious to listen to something else than all the uh, '90s Nirvana kind of music. 
yeah it's an accessible rather not the amount of people wanting to listen to metal i think yeah let's ask the big question then and i, I use i started going out of the gate with this question because everyone's got an opinion on it because i know why roadrunner is important but what why do you why do you think it was it's important enough to have a documentary done about it i guess because they brought in all the bands i liked <laughs> i mean i started the funny thing is that i'm old enough to to be able to say i started listening to metal when it started in the beginning mm. of the 80s because i don't see black sabbath uh led zeppelin and all those bands from the 70s as metal i mean they they stood up a little bit it was it was getting a little louder but then in the 80s it really started mm. and then i was like 11 12 i started listening to uh, first the police and then van halen and then van halen turned quickly to venom and all these all the bands i don't listen to anymore but then i mean and all those bands i listened to in the beginning were besides metallica of course and all the others all the other famous names even mm. now were roadrunner bands so it, it was it was it was a matter of timing picking out the best bands in all those small niches yeah and they i mean they did everything how do you think they had the capability of picking the best bands? The the uh, good A and R, I think. Is it just super <laughs> fucking lucky that Monty Connor just knows everything and has his ear to the ground? I I think he is the. Uh, I think in the end, it all started with him. If they wouldn't have had him, I yeah. don't know what would have happened. It could have been a not recognizable label at all right now. Mm. So you need someone to not even to. I mean, I know a lot of A and R guys in Holland that are famous for uh, tracking down just one big number one hit, and then maybe two or three other bands. But that's it most of the times because it's all all of that is also you don't really have to be able to to have a capacity or something. You have to have good ears mm -hmm. and. Uh, know you have to know a lot of people and know what the people want to hear yeah and then i mean come on he picked out so many uh, as far as quality is concerned and songwriting mm -hmm. he picked out i i don't know if he had uh, he might have if you're if you're a little bit if you're kind to him he could have had like a 100 percent score everything was a hit in yeah in in the certain area the music was coming from um i've heard him say his batting average i can't remember the number he gave me he said it was between 60 and 70 percent which is which is ridiculous yeah ridiculous to be fair to him um how did you feel about 2000s roadrunner do you feel like the the might have sort of sold out when they've when they've onboarded like more accessible hard rock acts like your theory of a dead man's your nickelbacks and things like that did you think the brand had been tarnished a little bit i kind of lost them mm -hmm. back then but on the end i mean bands like amen and all the stuff were also from the 2000 era i think mm -hmm. i don't even remember <laughs> late 90s 2000 yeah yeah and uh, slipknot is 99 i guess yeah uh, I mean, yeah, selling out, selling out. I mean, they tried. I mean, every company wants to get bigger. Mm. So you, 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 there, there is a way of of compromising. I think it's in my sort of narrative. It, it when the when Slipknot and Nickelback, because obviously it's, it's really intense period. 
Because you've got those two bands, yeah. then you've got um, the IDJ buyout, the Universal buyout. I call it a buyout. They bought a share, um, a considerable share, and all these things happen in such like a, a small period of time. But the way I look at it is, then as a fork, you've got these AAA acts. These are the ones that are keeping the lights on. These are the platinum sellers. And it's just Nickelback and, and, and Slipknot. And then underneath that, we've still got this underground metal thing, which mostly like the Mike Gitters of the world and Monty Connor's looking after. And yeah. that continues in the same capacity as it always has done, except yeah. maybe there's a resourcing problem now because you've got the same number of people working in the office. Obviously, there's expansions and contractions and things. Yeah. But when there's a Slipknot album cycle or when there's a Nickelback album cycle, the people who would normally be pushing these tiny underground bands are then called to action to push the Nickelback record. And maybe this is like my next sort of rabbit hole that I want to go down with, with people. I wonder if in the 2000s, that was the conflict. Not that the underground stuff had gone and that the metal credibility was gone, but the resources were now had to be all over the place. Yes. And I think... Um... If a company gets successful, I mean, I can I can relate to it as far as comparing it to the TMF era. So like the, the mm. TV station, we started with six people, ended up with 150. Crazy. Doing the same 24 hours of television. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it wasn't that uh, uh, like 20 times as much people were watching. We, we only got to like 1% of whole Holland, which is kind of funny for a TV station that just broadcast video clips. So it's, it was still like a, uh, a, a great thing to do, but it, it wasn't. And that's what happens with these kind of companies as well. I mean, I've been to the uh, US office, I think it might have been over 20 years ago already. There were a lot of people working there. All black t-shirts and jeans. Yeah, but a lot of people. <laughs> and it doesn't help in, in as far as efficiency. Um, like really building up relationships with uh, large platforms, TV stations, etc. Because if you have a lot of people working, especially in the States, I had so many contacts with people that uh, you meet on a Monday and then the next Monday they left the building already mm. and somebody else has taken over. Yeah. So yeah. It has become kind of like a uh, small company working as a major label. I think, yeah. and that doesn't really help uh, in the end, although it helps to make a lot of money. I think sell all the stuff to, what was it, Warner? Yes, it was Warner in the end. Yeah. Um, I think the interesting thing there, though, is the, is you had this expansion of people. You had these relationships that needed to be maintained. But a lot of the people who were there were lifers. So if you had, in your case, presumably a PR person, let's say it's Amy Chiaretto because she did PR for, towards the latter part of her career at Roadrunner, mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, she'd still be the point of contact. But if you couldn't speak to her for whatever reason, yeah. there's like three tiers down. There's, there's, there's a list of people who still represent her, who still maintain that relationship, which is, yeah. isn't as good as speaking to Amy herself or whoever your contact would be. Yeah. But it's a damn sight better than having sort of like a revolving door. Like let's say Amy's left the building one week and then it's someone else and yep. you're, there's no continual relationship. And I think that's more, probably probably the difference. I'm just spitballing at this point because it's, I'm trying to get uh, into the, the second. And, and as far as the Dutch part of Roadrunner is concerned, I mean, there was always someone 
to be connected to and to be helpful. Mm-hmm. So if I had a question about whatever, uh, there was al- always someone helping out with a video or with whatever. Yeah. They were really proactively thinking with us and not, not just one contact, but I think, I think it was the product manager. Um, it was Alain as well, Fahave as well. All yeah. those guys were just with, and it, it, I mean, I see Alain more, more or less as a friend than, than a, uh, than a colleague to work with. Cause I, I only meet him once a year now having dinner at home at some of our homes. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> It kind of turned out to be, uh, I don't know what, it's fun. And it's, it's, I mean, it's also, and that's uh, what everybody likes about metal, uh, whether you're wearing uh, these kinds of clothes or black shirts or hoodets or whatsoever, everybody thinks alike. Yeah, yeah, you definitely. Look, you might not look alike, but you think alike. So it's, it's a lot easier to, to work on a friendly basis, I think. Oh, completely. And it's a lot easier to work on a friendly basis if the people who are friendly are still working there. Yep. As opposed to, as you say, you spoke to them on the Monday, they're gone by the Friday, which yep. is, I understand is one of the revolt. It's, it's one of the natures of the, um, the major label system yep. to the point where I know Sepultura had, they were obviously with Roadrunner for a long time. And then yep. I think for Chaos, I don't know if it was Chaos, I might be forgetting, but for one of those, one of their albums, it might even be Arise, they went to Epic for it because they thought, we want the major label treatment, we want the major label distribution. And there was a guy at Epic who was like, yes, everything we want for um, Sepultura, you're our guys. He was gone the next Monday and they were like, there was nothing, the experience for them was nothing different from Roadrunner except they knew everyone at Roadrunner. Yep. Yeah, Sepultura, Jesus. I haven't seen that band playing for a long time which era the Derek green era or the max era i don't think i have ever seen Derek green performing <laughs> <laughs> like, live so that's 25 years ago <laughs> man it was 25 years wasn't it that's when roots came out yeah that's yeah. that shit we wow. did a uh, recording of their show in uh like a uh a 13,000 capacity venue sold out in rotterdam right and then a couple of days later, they were gone. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Was that one of the last gigs? I think so. Yeah. Trying to pin that. This is the problem with this project. I have to learn all these histories. And then I, I, yep. when it comes to the details, when I have to recall it. It just doesn't happen. Yeah, that's what I was telling you last time. I mean, the funny thing of thinking about Roadrunner times, I mean, it's half of my life ago. <laughs> so things are keep popping up. And people are popping up. Yeah. So who's that guy? Who's that guy? And I'm st- I started talking to some of the guys, which is also funny, because then they pop up with names. They go, oh, fuck, yeah. <laughs> totally forgotten them. I feel bad because I've got a big list of people, a massive list of people to, um, um, to interview, the people who I consider to be like, all right, he was here for this period and this period, so he must understand this, the blah, 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 blah. And then if I haven't got reached out to him and someone mentions him, I feel guilty. I don't, nope. don't know these people. <laughs> I still yeah. feel like really guilty. Yeah. Yeah. It's a shitload of people that really work with them, though. Yeah. I think. Yeah, totally. I think at its biggest, Marcus Turner was telling me, I think at its biggest, it was about 250 people. Yeah. Which, if you think across like New York office, London office, Amsterdam office, German office, French office, there were some others. There's a Canadian office, which wasn't negligible. There's the Australian office, yeah. Japan. And there was a lot of other satellite offices. 
Brazil. There's an Argentinian office for a while. Uh, then 250 doesn't even sound that much. It doesn't. It doesn't. Which is crazy, really. Well, who's your, who's your favorite road in a band then? That's a difficult question. I would say the band that I saw playing live the most in Holland was Sepultura because I saw all their shows. Right. Until 96. I was really, <laughs> there was, I was a, I started studying journalism in uh, Tilburg, which had a uh, really nice uh, venue with, um, I think it, the capacity wasn't that big, about 1,500 or something. Mm. And all the metal plants played, bands played over there. And my, little room i lived in back then was just a couple of hundred uh, yards from it mm -hmm. so i took, always took the bike and went to see everything and i mean i saw them all over there and then after the show you ate uh french fries uh 20 yards ahead from the uh, from the venue with all the bands mm. and then i think i i don't know if i ever have a real favorite band but if you look at the amount of time I spent with bands and the amount of interviews I did with Max and all the guys. I think it's either, it's either Corey Taylor or Max Cavalier, one of the two. <laughs> <laughs> but it took, uh, Corey Taylor is, is, it's kind of funny as well because he's got four kids and then I've got four as well. So we always had fun about all those kids. <laughs> but that's also been a long time because I don't, I kind of, I kind of lost uh, the appetite for Slipknot over the last years right i was going to say what how did you feel about slipknot when they first came out because that was like that was, was a bomb going off wasn't it yeah and the funny thing is it was in the end of my uh, working area at the tmf time and then i didn't even have to tell the guy that was doing all the uh, all the, the video clips to do wait and bleed he put it on the a-list and played it the whole fucking day which is <laughs> kind of funny because it wasn't really the music we were playing during in that time, but then, and that helped a lot of bringing Slipknot to everybody in Holland in just a couple of weeks. Is that how it works then from a video perspective? There's an A-list and a B-list and a C-list, and then the rotation of which you'll probably prioritize the A-list and then work your way yeah. down. And then you have a super clip that's been, I think it, it was played like every two hours. And the only metal- A band, super clip, wow, okay. Yeah. And I think, I think we did uh, Slipknot once and Korg Freak on a Leash as well. Right, yeah. But that's it. I mean, all the other stuff didn't get that far. <laughs> yeah. But it was funny though. I mean, in, in the real beginning of the TV, st uh, TV station, we only did like eight hours and then a repetition of eight hours two times and then another new eight hours and eight hours and eight hours. And the metal show was on Monday night between 10 and 12. But of course, if you do it on a repetition, you get it also at Tuesday daytime. And then I, once I was standing there with the, uh, the the owner of the TV station, we were watching this this TV uh, TV hanging on the uh, on the uh, on the wall. He was going like, "Oh, come on, fuck Frank!" <laughs> it's, it's just because it's just two hours, but he hated it. He really hated it. The only thing you saw was just guys with long hair. <laughs> hey man but if twenty thousand people are watching it and yeah it was good enough and uh well the the main issue was that i didn't want to be a program director of a tv station that was just uh, a radio station with a picture with moving images yeah because that what that was the original idea so just do all these these um 
these top 40 hits and that's it 24 hours a day a couple of uh, good looking girls to to host the shows a couple mm-hmm. of guys that also did like uh, did do the biggest radio station and that's it and then uh, we brought in a show about alternative rock uh, mm-hmm. metal uh, soul and hip hop so we had like four shows in a week doing something different than all the same old same old music right and i think in the i think in the beginning wet and wild which was the metal show was like the the, the most well known <laughs> show we did because yeah. it was so crazy would you do it would you do it in dutch or would it be in english dutch and then in the end it was english because of uh uh we the last i think two or three years there were bands hosting the show oh cool right yeah, like, uh, we didn't. We couldn't. I mean, the, the guy that uh, he's still he's still one of the most famous radio DJs now in Holland. But he he didn't want to do it anymore because it was it was almost it was too shitty to do see, see him doing interviews with my dying bride and all the stuff because he saw <laughs> all the guys think after two minutes, Jesus fucking Christ, why am I here? And with television, you can see it. You can't you can't get it away. <laughs> Yeah, especially if you work in TV, you can read the body language, can't you? And just go, yeah. I didn't. I really didn't want to host a show on on uh, public on, on television. So we didn't. Well, we thought we thought about getting someone in, but then in the end, it was it was a lot more fun to have all those either Roadrunner bands or Metallica or whatsoever. Everybody did it. Mm. it was pretty easy for them because they had to pick out four or five video clips, and the rest I would just put in. Mm. yeah, yeah. Well, see, you mentioned earlier that headbangers ball uk would be broadcast there as well that was yep. the thing what i didn't i didn't know this i didn't know headbangers that, ball uk had vanessa that work. the vanessa work thing was the headbangers ball uk right yes yeah yeah wow. we, and, and they uh and it, i don't know when they started but i we didn't have mtv at the place i lived with my parents but then a couple of cities further on like 10 or 12 kilometers uh further on they did have it so i sometimes most of the sundays i just took my bike to a friend of mine and watched headbangers ball <laughs> and i got all my new i was writing for or magazine yeah all the new metal stuff i got from headbangers ball right okay i, d- I just didn't know it had that wide but i knew it was a big deal we, in didn't US. Have any, we didn't have any internet that's the funny thing when yeah. i started working at tmf we didn't even have a website Mm. or email I, did, I had the last year of working only with fax and phone <laughs> <laughs> that's that's how old i am it's simpler time though isn't it yeah everything's easy then <laughs> yeah it was yeah, but then i also remember that the the ethics of working uh with email had to be learned by a lot of people well because everyone was just a lot of fights a lot of fights <laughs> between people because of misunderstanding and just using cat locks on on that so everybody thought well fuck he's angry <laughs> no by <laughs> accident use his cat lock <laughs> as if funny and there's no etiquette <laughs> no. oh fair enough no i just had no idea that metal sorry headbang as well had the uk one had so much influence i would have expected a europe like a, it's that's like a german one i would have expected a german headbang as well no yeah, no, we had an English one because we don't really like to listen to German people. 
I don't know if the, I don't even think there was a German. I'm not headband. sure. I, no. I, the, the impact of headbangers ball isn't exactly something that was highlighted to me until I spoke to um, uh, Rick Ernst the other week. Rick Ernst was like the head of video at Roadrunner in the latter years. Yeah. Um, and he was in headbangers ball and he kind of made it clear that it was a big deal. And I was like, how do you, I even thought of that. Cause obviously I, I then have a lot of questions around. So how did Roadrunner leverage their relationship with headbangers ball? Because the thing you'd know about Roadrunner is everyone understands the brand and everyone yeah. is always in everyone's faces. And obviously headbangers ball was a big part of that because all their bands were on there. So yeah. what's the relationship? How does it happen? Blah, 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 blah. And it just didn't occur to me until like three weeks ago to start asking questions like that. I think they did. I think the way they treated us was exactly the same as they did with the. Uh, the it, sh it should be the same as they did with Headbangers uh, mm. Ball England because, um, I mean, they got to they got them to play every video they yeah. released. It's probably worth again, I mean, it wasn't that the music Roadrunner was uh, releasing was bad. Mm. It was really easy to play it. Yeah, of course, there's that, but I think, and this is where my understanding falls apart. But when you've got when you've when you're when you've got a programmer who's going right, what videos are we going to play? There's presumably a external influencer who is going, well, Sony is offering us five grand if we play this guy, and this guy's offering us six grand if we play this guy, and nah. somehow Rodron has got to have to bring something to the table, not necessarily monetary, but there's. I the, the I had a lot of fights with some major labels because they thought that if they uh, would buy some commercial ad time, mm. we would uh, automatically play videos. But we did it completely without any influence from the outside, as far as money is concerned. Mm. Uh, we yes, we let them pay for cameras, etc. Because without that money, we couldn't even do the interviews. Oh sure, yeah. Um, but it was also fun because I had a uh, conversation with, I think it was the tour manager of Corn somewhere in New Orleans mm -hmm. uh, with Family Values Tour. So just before they released uh, Freak on the Leash and all, the, all those big hit songs. Yeah. And he offered us to uh, get along with them for, for a couple of days in a private airplane to do the promotion for this new album, blah, 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 blah. If we would we would uh, we would play those videos, and I would I was going like no fucking way. First, I have to see it first before I promise you everything, and then mm. it, you know, we we didn't do anything with this private plane whatsoever. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. if you start with that, it kind of like it, it, it'll start killing it, it because pretty pretty fast. Because then your autonomy to f figure out oh, what do people want to see is going to be compromised, isn't it? Because yep. Which is uh, uh, probably pretty fast. Uh, will, uh, it will probably turn out to get you like half of the amount of people watching. Because it's going to be an annoying television show. Uh, mm. if you get music that nobody likes. You will just turn it off. Same as radio. And this is, this is the thing. I know I keep, I keep rolling it back to this big question as to why Roadrunner was so effective and so, so big. And it is because they had the acts. They also had the personal credibility where they probably weren't dangling private airplanes in front of you. And there's, there's, there's a relationship management arm to the company which assisted or greased the wheels of all these things happening. So no wonder the brand was in your face every day. 
because it was easy for them to do because they weren't having to overcome any management obstacles. They weren't having to go overcome any cultural obstacles. We've got the acts and we've got the relationships. Let's just go and deliver the thing. Yeah. Makes everyone's day easier. And I think the acts is uh, 85% of everything. Yeah. And then uh, a good marketing strategy is the rest mm -hmm. and a bit of luck. I think, but I, I don't know how much luck is involved. This is the quite. This is what I'm trying to figure out because I know yeah. it's predominantly the acts, yeah. but the acts are nothing without infrastructure. No. Um, if Slipknot signed to fucking Sony, what would the world look like? I don't know. <clears throat> you know, is this the amount Sepul of records sold might not have been enough? If Sepultura stayed with the indie Brazilian label, what would have happened? Yeah, there's. That 15% that's not the eyes is, I think it is significant in terms of the platforming. Um, yeah, and then, but then, it, then you should look at the A&R specifically. Oh, yeah. If you listen to this first Sepultura album, I don't, I mean, I like it because it's funny, but it's completely nothing compared to Beneath Remains. Yeah, completely, yeah. <clears throat> Somebody changed, I mean, it can't be just Max Cavalera by himself. That really changed the sound of the music. No, there's a number of things. I mean, the Morris sound years are a, yeah, yeah. a force unto themselves, really. Did you vibe with death metal? Yeah, in a way. And the funny thing is that I'm right now, uh, over the last, it might have been something to do, with, it might have been something to do with COVID, but I started listening to deathcore a lot more. Oh, okay. Again, but the funny thing now is because I still write for Artschok metal hammer over here in holland mm -hmm. under, uh, under a, a different name than my own name and i have to do all these bands and uh, if you listen to all these deathcore bands there isn't uh, not a lot of them are really interesting no it's, it's there's so much great and great and the sound is always good but then there are just a few and i think the one band that also made me think of uh, of Rogue Runner was Tala. Because this oh, yeah. singer is um, he's also on on YouTube doing. He doesn't really look metal at all. Mm. It's I don't I still don't know exactly what it is, but he sounds a little bit like Mike Patton as well because he has all these reaches and all the stuff, and he's just as crazy as well. Yeah, they might do something great over the next years, but that's it. All Tala. the rest. Tala, T A L L A H. Have you not heard um, Venom Prison? Yeah, i I remember I remember hearing them from I don't know some kind of an Apple playlist, mm -hmm. and then I, I even think I did a review on an album two years ago. I think one or two, something like that. Yeah, yeah. I think they've had, I think they've done like an album a year for the last couple of years. Yeah, there was some. At least they tried to. Those are bands that try to do something newish mm. instead of just copying everything it's interesting because in five years you'll probably forget 90 percent of those death car acts and only remember the ones that, yep. that persevered and that's the, that's the, the the curse of like having your ears to the ground you have to get through all the shit yeah and then i can't explain to you why i still like diarda's murder way better than all the other bands i don't know <laughs> It's it's not that they really sound different, mm. <laughs> or yeah. So well, this it's, is it's a combination of 
marketing, uh, CJ, the sound of the music, the live shows. <clears throat> it's, so the differences are really subtle, and I don't. Sometimes there's not words to describe them. This is why it's so subjective. Yeah, it's easy to say I like Slipknot because you go, oh, they're just nine nut jobs in jumpsuits. And if you were back in 2000, you go, and they throw up before on stage before they go on, they're fucked up. It's crazy. <laughs> you can, there's a there's a level of mystique you can attach yourself to, and that's what you were saying about like the art, the the marketing arm, and the presentation of the act themselves is like. Yeah. that's something you can describe and attach yourself to. But sometimes when yeah. it's just the music, you can't necessarily go, I like it because. No, but that's, so that's I like it. one of the reasons I keep listening to all these Apple playlists, metal playlists. They're not really renewed as much as I want to. Mm. Still, I keep listening to them because one out of 10 is a new band with a great song. Yeah. Nine out of 10 aren't. Especially when Iron Maiden releases a new album they put in eight fucking songs in a row on this playlist they go come on yeah <laughs> i've not heard the new maiden yet it's well if you're a massive maiden fan of you either you were i mean it's it's gonna be good mm -hmm. I've, i listened to it once or twice and it was it was kind of good but i am i'm not going to maiden shows anymore <laughs> i like the um the as they've gone into the post 2000s, they've just sort of got more and more jam band. Yeah. They've got more of a jam vibe. They've got the productions like more practice room. It's like, well, you know what? I'll, I'll happily take a practice room production deliberately than, oh, what's the new Metallica album sounding like? Oh, it's as crisp as you can possibly fucking get it. It's like, okay. Yeah, but Metallica is also a band that if you started listening to them in the 80s, you, you stopped listening to it after 91. Yes, totally. I try. I always give it a try, and every album I got. And Hardwire was kind of good. Mm. Apparently, not good enough to listen to it uh, more than two or three times. What about Slayer then? Because Slayer kept a consistency. Yeah, but I, I, the funny, I didn't like Slayer when they were around, and then the last ten years or something, I went to more shows, and actually started to like them when I was 35 or 40. <laughs> <laughs> Which happened with a lot more bands like Obituary and all the stuff. I, I kind of, I didn't dig it at all uh, right. in the 80s, 90s, whenever, whenever. And then right now I would go to any kind of a concert of them because it's always good for about an hour. <laughs> when they first came out, like Obituary and all these early Florida death metal bands, because this is in my head kind of this is where Roadrunner first started getting their traction yeah. because they, obviously they had Merciful Fate they had Crimson Glory they had King Diamond they had all these cool bands that were doing cool things but in terms of like a label trying to trend set it is Deicide yeah. it is Obituary it's like it's all that Florida death metal stuff yeah. but I'm trying to figure out from people who were there at the time, was it because it was like so fringe and so extreme that people drew, drew to it? Or was it because it's like, ah, this is actually really fucking cool. And it's really fucking, that, was there an accessibility, which I'm not seeing? Do you know what I mean? Because like when you, yeah. when you say, when they first came out, I didn't like it. I was like, I bet that was the experience for a load of people, but Roadrunner still stuck with it. And that's yeah. interesting to me. There was a I mean, I also know a lot of guys uh, about my age that can still do like all the lines 
um, just 100% correct. Mm. So there are a lot of real, real, real fans back then, but uh, I don't know. Took me a little, uh, a little time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, these are the things I need to unlock, and maybe, maybe Scott Burns can help me with that. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah. I have, in terms of like my own questions, I've got nothing else. Is there any any kind of rabbit holes you want to jump down, or any stories that you might have occurred to you in the last few weeks since we last spoke? No, I think I mean the, one of the funniest stories is the fact that they had uh, they is Robert had a bar a free beer bar backstage at the Dynamo Festival, which I, mean, I still have photos of the Meshuggah guys being as drunk as fuck. And uh, I don't know, uh, Demi Borg here, all those guys, everybody's drinking their asses off over there. But it was too funny. So that's a way of, I mean, they were smart enough to be everywhere. You had to be as a metal label. And they were just, I mean, everybody loved them, so everybody was over there drinking beer. <laughs> if it's a free bar, everyone's going to go to the free bar. Three days in a row. <laughs>